0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
0: Here are your
1: hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's always good to be here.
0: Well, it's our house. It's, <laughs> it's kind of nice, to be, nice, nice to be in our house. It's our house, house,
1: yes. Amidst the, the mess and the detritus. It's our
0: mess and detritus. Our
1: house in the middle of our street. It's, it's very nice. Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. We're still doing our stealth Batman 75th anniversary thing. <laughs> Joker 74. By talking about dreadful birthday, dear Joker. Before we get started, I have thanks to throw out in the Christmas episode, or was it the New Year episode? No. Anyway, one of them Christmas episodes that we did, I forget which one, I pointed out that on our Christmas tree, I have no decorations. Okay. Your mum has lots of Nightmare Before Christmas stuff,
0: don't you? I don't have any decorations. And, well, it's not your tree, dude. My tree. Okay. When you have your own tree, you put what you want on you it. You don't even put that snowman up anymore, I made in primary school. Uh, yeah, there's a reason for that. It was damned ugly. It's a <laughs> the snowman, they're not exactly
1: that good to look at, are they? Anyway, I received a Christmas ornament in the in the mail yesterday as we recorded. I'm playing with it now, and uh, yeah. David Gusarez, hello David, sent me a hallmark. Christmas tree ornament. Not a just any. Hallmark Valentine's decoration. <laughs> Not just any Hallmark Christmas tree decoration. Oh, no, 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 no. This was this.
0: I am the voice of Night Industry 2000's microprocessor. K-I-T-T for easy reference. A kit if you prefer. <laughs> How cool is
1: that? He has sent me a Knight Rider kit that when you press a button not only does it speak but the, the scanner at the front goes well, it doesn't go woo woo but it lights yeah, up yeah. and it's absolutely awesome it's actually a really really cool model it's not like a cheap knockoff or anything it's got wheels that move you, it's got, it. you can actually play, with, can it, play which, with it which I am turbo boosting over my Batman graphic novels as we speak because I'm uh, Star Wars Scoundrels that's a big book isn't it turbo
0: boost kit Woo! So it just crashed into your hand, and that's, that's what he used to do. And he just leaped forward like it was. So thank you, David.
1: Thank you very much. I did and which button
0: does it go into a turbo mode? No,
1: it only has that one button on it. I did think it would have a range of voices, mm. but it only says that. But either way, come on, that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's quite impressive. That. So that's far too good for Christmas. Right. That's not going in a box and waiting for Christmas. That is art, taking pride of place on my bookshelf next to the 1966 Batmobile and a Battlestar Galactica Viper.
0: So thank you very much, David. That was... that was bookshelf um, that's becoming littered with yeah, your stuff. That's just too
1: full. I need more bookshelf. Uh, you're interrupting me every time I say thank you to David. I, I, thank you, David. I was very, very touched, and I squeed like a girl, apparently. Was that because you were touched? Yes, I had been touched. <laughs> <laughs> As Michael Bailey says, show me on the doll <laughs> where they touched you. <laughs> no, I was made up with that, because it looks really cool, doesn't it? It's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Because it does just look like a little toy thing, normally, but you can hang it from a tree. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, secondly, before we, we carry on with the show, we're going to do a couple of emails like we normally do and then get into the uh, what Michael refers to as the meat The meat of the show. First of all, I see the download figures on this show. Do yeah. you? Yes. And I know from we the download figures, we're, well, stratospheric, man. <laughs> Through the roof, download. But this is apparently what you're supposed to say. Right. You're supposed to... Exaggerate your numbers. Okay. You don't say stuff like, "Well, we have 15 listeners." Well,
0: those 15 listeners. But they're 15 yeah. loyal listeners. Exactly, yeah.
1: I would rather have 15 loyal listeners than 500 who don't give a damn. But we know we Why have more you than 15 if you don't give a damn. I don't. People do. I don't know. Um, we have more listeners than that. Okay. Because I see the figures. And more I'm than more...
0: stratospherically through the roof. Yes,
1: more than stratospherically. <laughs> you gonna let me finish. More than stratospherically through the roof. What I'm trying to say okay. is that those people don't email us get in touch with those people if you've never emailed in before get in touch if you're not even a Facebook friend friend us on Facebook and join in I'll talk to anybody we know. we're not we're not an exclusive club we're quite inclusive mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're open to everybody I'm like a ten dollar whore <laughs> I am open to everybody as um, long well as you have ten dollars yeah everybody is welcome bring a comic bring a beer is the motto of this show isn't it or bring a whiskey we'd rather bring a beer but uh, well. yeah well you can read my comics <laughs> eater, as long as you bring your own alcohol we'll laugh it. so if you've because feedback makes the show better I genuinely think feedback makes the show better and we're not above being a jukebox every mm-hmm. now and again we would never have thought of doing a G.I. Joe show without reader suggestion yeah. or an EC comics show or a Conan show or any other number of things we've done because people have suggested them. we've got Transformers coming up I would never have thought of doing a Transformers show no. until somebody said do Transformers here's some comics <laughs> and we went okay well, it's the least we can do so I mean we don't want to turn into a complete jukebox show yeah, because there's obviously stuff that, that we like but if you throw out a suggestion that, that tickles our ivories then we're certainly not averse to going that seems like a good idea doesn't it mm-hmm. so but especially it's it's just um, other podcasters have told me that we have a mailbag to, to die for and we're happy about that we're very proud of that and we're glad that people think that they can email in and say whatever the hell they like basically but I know there are more people out there who've never emailed in so if you've never emailed in or never Facebooked us or whatever get in touch so let us know what you think and we may make some subtle changes in the last six months before Michael
0: goes to the university Sky, <laughs> where it's at and we'll think about it and you both both in your own things but one person might lose their recording yeah. and then you end up having to do it again yeah. whereas with this
1: we've never had to do that all I'm going to say. A couple of emails before we get our first email is from Stephen Fry. Now that is awesome. Stephen Fry (laughs) listens to this show. (laughs) National treasure. Stephen Fry listens to our show. I am touched. I wonder if Hugh Laurie listens. More importantly, I wonder if Hugh Laurie listens in an American accent. Or does he listen in a British accent? Or does he listen in his British accent? Mm. You know when they said they were redoing the Equaliser? Yeah. And they've got Denzel Washington. As the Equalizer, right. which I'm not sure what to think about because Edward Woodward was the Equalizer, yeah. But uh, Genzel's a good actor, so we'll we'll see what they do with it. But my first thought when they said they were doing an Equalizer movie, Hugh Laurie, Hugh Laurie would have been perfect as the Equalizer. Okay, because I think he would be he's roughly the same bright age now. Yeah, and he's proper British, despite what the people who watch House may think. <laughs> I wonder if they'd watch it and go, his, his British accent was crap." <laughs> That'd be really funny. <laughs> anyway, again we started Steven's email and um and interrupted it and again we didn't do that on purpose. Stephen says happy holidays to the Laylands. you yeah, well we had a happy holiday. was many but this is the last email of twenty thirteen, is it? Yeah. Well, it's 2014 after this one. Uh, I'm surprised you guys never drank eggnog, says Stephen. It's actually quite good. A drink made of whipped egg, milk, sugar and other sweet things. It's like drinking a milkshake. It's especially good with cinnamon and or nutmeg. Well, next year when Starbucks start the Christmas seasonal drinks again, I will have an eggnog. Okay. and see what I think of it. I In fact, you know what we should totally do? Right. We should totally record do what we did with Twinkies. It. We should totally record us having eggnog for the first time for the Christmas show. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I think that's an
1: excellent idea, because you'll be back home for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So we will do The Bride of Hey Kids Comics at Christmas, won't we?
0: Right, we're going to have a different yeah, yeah, yeah. horror movie. Yeah, a different on yeah. <laughs> Creatures on the
1: Loose. <laughs> Cree- cre- hey Kids Comics on the Loose. The Bride of Hey Kids Comics. That kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Anyway, uh, Stephen continues, I want to talk a little bit about the Watcher, who is arguably one of my favourite characters in the Marvel Universe. His actions in the Marvel team-up is not surprising. Who are to? The Watcher has always been an enigma, because like you said in your Christmas special, he's only supposed to observe, not directly interfere, hence his employment of Spider-Man. However, he is constantly finding ways to circumvent the system. Bend the rules, if you will. If you want to read more about him, I suggest looking up old Fantastic Four issues. I don't remember who the author-artist was. I just remember that it was in the upper 300s. There was one issue where you are to put on trial by the other Watchers because he has actually killed another Watcher who was threatening humanity. Obviously, his main claim to fame was warning the FF of the coming of the Silver Surfer and Galactus. Considering how spied in the human torture BFS, it wouldn't surprise me if Johnny informed him about the Watcher, as the FF are probably the only Marvel team that fully interacted with him you pick pretty good choices for a holiday themed comic Oh, well, thank you very much but if I could make some recommendations you might want to check out the Marvel Holiday Special it's a series of one shot stories featuring the Marvel heroes at Christmas most notably is the X-Men story which happens right before Dark Phoenix Saga another holiday issue is Fantastic Four issue 361 which is basically the thing trying to stop Doctor Doom from doing something evil to the Yancey Street Gang like the Luke Cage Iron Fist issue it's a story that takes place around Christmas rather than deals directly with Christmas it's a fun one shot in between multi-part story arcs. Keep up the good work. May all your bells be jingled and your halls be decked, Stephen Fry. Oh, well, thank you very much, right, Stephen. Certainly, we may look at those Marvel holiday specials for next year. We're always on the lookout for good Christmas stories for the Christmas episodes, aren't we?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, unless, like, this year, where you change your mind at the last minutes. There is that. <laughs> That's we, what I did. We do Happy for next Christmas, though. If you want to do Happy, we will do Happy. Mm-hmm. We will do another Grant Morrison special just for you. Do you hear that sound? <laughs> Scott Gardner, turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Scott. Uh, Hey, kids, Christmas is the other one. Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris. Hello, Leyland. Happy New Year to you and your family. Hope you had a great... Well, we did. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much for spreading more cheer via your Christmas episode. I decided to leave it for an after-Christmas treat when I returned to work on December 30th. Spread the wealth and all that. I have that Marvel teen up somewhere. I remember noticing the watcher's costume is wildly miscoloured on the cover. Where did that green come from? You know, we did not notice that, no, did we? Didn't.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Critical reading. <laughs> it's our forte. <laughs> Kerry Gammel is indeed a vastly underrated artist. I loved his Spider Man and Superman work. I understand he was pretty meticulous and slow, so that accounts for the rather thin resume he has. Given his years in the business, I believe he's a fan of classic monster films and collectibles, and has been involved in several documentaries and books on the subject. I was never a reader of Power Man and Iron Fist, but this story sounds intriguing. I remember seeing the ads for this issue in Marvel Comics of the time when I was very young. It seemed more adult than my Spider-Man comics. Well, the Power Man and Iron Fist one that we picked is at the back end of the Essential Iron Fist um, volume, which I heartily recommend. I loved that Essential Iron Fist volume because I'd never read it before. Early Chris Clermont and John Byrne stuff from just around or just before they were going to get on X-Men. So before they, you know, they hit that crest of a wave of popularity. Really good stuff. Well worth checking out, that Essential Iron Fist. It did make me want to read more Power Man and Iron Fist, but after that issue, Burn Bails out, and then I don't think Clermont stays along for long. Yeah, so... I'm, I'm, I recommend Essential Iron Fist to anybody, and I know Luke Jackinetti's a big fan of Luke Cage, but, you know, who isn't? Who doesn't love Luke Cage? Chris also says that we're missing out on eggnog. Apparently, there is bad eggnog. <laughs> is it made of bad eggs? Wow. But when done right, it's a wonderful holiday treat. Kind of like liquid
0: custard. <laughs> Isn't custard or liquid anyway? Well, uh,
1: I know that doesn't sound appetising, but I assure you it is. My wife and I usually toast the New Year with a glass of nog, since we aren't drinkers. Oh, I okay. don't know,
0: drinking custard sounds appetising to me. Does it really? Oh,
1: okay, fair enough. Rough, enough rambling, looking forward to Volume 3 in 2014. Well, you're very welcome, Chris, thank you very much. Chris has become a regular emailer to the show, and uh, he also appeared on a couple of podcasts, Power Records, with um, the mighty Robert Kelly. So I thoroughly enjoyed listening to that when you're recommending me. I've got another Power Records one on my iPod. It's the uh, Christmas one. I need to get around to that because it's good. And speaking of David Guterres, who sent me kit, uh, just, you know, one more time.
0: I am the voice of Light Industry 2000's microprocessor. K-I-T-T for as <laughs> reference. A kit if you prefer.
1: That is awesome!
0: Put that
1: back on my bookshelf. No, i will have to have it like that, don't we? Yeah. Uh, yes, David, David. In defence of number eight and one bit about Into Darkness. So this is another Christmas feedback. Andrew and Michael, but mostly Andrew. <laughs> do you want to set the day off? <laughs> Firstly, what do you think of that Christmas special? Sadly, it couldn't measure up to the 50th. Great farewell speech from Smith. Not enough Clara. Nice Capaldi bit, if not a bit abrupt. Christmas special was a mixed bag, wasn't it? Yeah. It seemed like there was an awful lot going on. And then there was lots of languorous bits in the middle, and then there was a lot going on again. I thought it
0: was very slow-paced, and they didn't focus on what they should have been focusing on. Yeah, I thought the pacing was out the window. Yeah, because the ending is... Smith's final bit is just... rushed. Yeah, and it's all of a sudden he's Peter Capaldi. Yeah. There no, there isn't even, arguably, a regeneration scene. It wasn't as painful to watch as the... Um, no, at least, at least there was a story for the episode, and it wasn't just like... Tenant. I, I just thought that the, the regeneration for Eccleston into um, David Tennant was painfully long to watch. No, it, was, it wasn't. He was just saying you're not supposed to do that. It was, because you didn't want him to regenerate, but here you are watching it, and he just keeps going on and on and on and on and on, and then he's David Tennant, but this one he's just, you he blinking. Where and were we? Day. Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> no, I didn't I didn't mind
1: the Eccleston regeneration, because that seemed quite sudden. No, I, I liked it and because out of, the of blue. how long it is. tenants went on for a bit long, yeah. and uh, Smith was very abrupt, yeah. Mm. Still, Matt Smith was easily the best thing about it, I think, is, is the is the best thing I can say about the Christmas one. I need to watch yeah. it again. But
0: I am looking forward to Capaldi.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think Capaldi will be fantastic. And I think that anything that isn't a full episode of Clara is not enough Clara.
1: <laughs> Were you just annoyed <laughs> by the Clara is nude tease? Did you know just what? <laughs> come on, take clothes off that. Yeah. Cool, we've got to go both ways, yeah? Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, David continues How can I say Doctor Number 8 is my favourite when he appeared in only one telly and a crappy one at that? Easy because his performance was terrific. I never for a moment didn't think this guy couldn't pull off a series, and yes, I have been a fan of the big Finnish audio dramas, so maybe that bleeds into it. McGann possesses a real gravity, a believability that's instantaneous. Also, he's my first adult exposure to Doctor Who. I was only exposed to the fourth and fifth Doctors, not sure if the earlier or later episodes are on PBS, and I think I told you this once, one day Doctor Who was replaced by Blake Seven. I was confused and furious, so no Doctor Who for little Davey G until the TV movie, and I could finally see something again McGann brought me back that's fair enough I suppose I still think he's the best thing about that film yeah but and he was great in that little night of the doctor thing when I did like doctor, yeah, but, not but not the one, one we're you were expecting,
0: expecting. <laughs> which Stephen Lacey likes to say frequently yes,
1: yes. Uh, where am I David continues I'm curious about why you didn't get into McCoy's version of the doctor did you like number six I loved Perry loved Perry I loved Perry's bosoms <laughs> I wasn't I didn't mind Colin Baker. Colin Baker was when I started drifting away from it. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Perry's gravity-defying acts tended to keep me bringing back a little bit. But other than that, I don't mind Colin Becker. I think he's pretty good. But I, I don't think he was serviced by particularly good stories. Uh, David finalises with, totally agree with everything you said about Into Darkness. I loathed it. But I wanted to address your beef with Quinto Spock contacting Nimoy Spock. I think that when the writers of New Trek brought and kept Spock into this new timeline, they're hamstrung to address his presence, particularly when the new crew are faced with something Nimoy Spock may have faced before. It's the same problem I had when I saw Iron Man 3. I kept thinking, the movies addressed the fact that Iron Man shows a universe with the Avengers that provides no real reason for calling for backup when it would seem like he really needs it. If the Trek guys were smart, and clearly not, because Into Darkness is a steaming pile, they would have killed old Spock, returned him home, or made it so he's completely unreach- unreachable. Now he's a lifeline. Best David Gutierrez. Yeah, we thought that was a little bit silly. See, the thing with me with Iron Man 3, I didn't mind that he didn't call in the other guys, because the point of the film, for me, was he was suffering an inferiority complex. Yeah. Tony Stark... ...was suffering an inferiority complex... ...which in, of self, in and of itself is an interesting idea... Mm. ...so he's not going to go running to the Avengers... ...when he's got a problem... ...because he doesn't want to be
0: with the because, Avengers...
1: ...because yeah, they made made him feel inadequate... ...which is something he's not used to dealing with... Yeah. ...so the fact that he didn't call the Avengers in... ...in Iron Man 3 made sense... But there is also this thing as well, you know, Captain America doesn't call for assistance every month in Captain America comics when he's in trouble, mm. even though the Avengers are there. It's, to me, it's, I am going watching Iron Man 3 now, not the I Avengers. don't expect the Avengers to show up. Yeah. And I didn't have a problem with that, I know a couple of people have had a problem with that, like, well, Thor's around, why can you not call Thor? Well, Thor 2 established that he was off fighting in um, Asgard. Yeah. He was off protecting the Nine Realms, so we couldn't call him for help. But last we saw Bruce Banner in the Avengers, he was leaving with Tony Stark, wasn't
0: he? Yeah. So I suppose in theory we could have had Bruce Banner well, in it. he is isn't it. Yeah, only in that little bit at the yeah. end. It's still enough, I think. When you're dealing with one of the solo movies, I think it yeah. enough. Yeah, and you don't... I don't... I didn't really want the Hulk to show up in Iron Man 3, hmm.
1: to be honest with you. I mean, maybe Hawkeye or Black Widow. Apparently Black Widow's going to be in Cap 2. Yeah. So, see, I don't mind that. But, you know, that wasn't what bothered me. You know, I liked Iron Man 3. I thought it was pretty entertaining. Thank you, David. We will knock it on the head, though. And we will trailer some somebody's show or Mm -hmm. some event or something. I'm sure it will be good. I'm I'm positive (laughs) that it will be excellent. And when we come back with our stealth Batman 75th anniversary show, we will continue with Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker.
0: As I was saying, since every fish in Gotham now bears my famous and frankly fabulous face, I should be getting a profit from every fish product sold. Let's say uh, a nickel per fish sandwich, 50 cents for sardines, millions of dollars a day to finance my happily hedonistic lifestyle. So which of your tedious copyright forms do I fill out first? You may speak now. No one can copyright fish. They're a natural resource. But they share my unique face. Colonel Watts' name has chickens, and they don't even have mustaches. I can't help it. It's the law. Now, oh, trying to cheat the Joker, are you? Well, we'll see who has the last laugh.
1: You! Have until midnight to change your mind, Francis. Or you'll be the poorest
0: fish of all. (laughs) Bye-bye. He's crazy.
1: The Joker continued to be a steady thorn in Batman's side throughout the 40s, a constant threat, but never really attaining the level of arch-foe that Lex Luthor had attained with Superman, although in terms of sales appeal, they were neck and neck. Despite his murderous M.O. in the early stories, the 50s saw the character cease being a killer and be portrayed more of a jokester, a man who was more of an annoyance than anything else, and not somebody who was in any way a credible threat to the Dark Knight. He was regularly teamed up with Lex Luthor in an effort to irritate the world's finest team. His plans largely revolved around being seen as a great comedian, such as the time he caused havoc simply because he wasn't on a list of great celluloid comedians like Laurel and Hardy. In other instances, he was allowed to co-sign licenses with Lex and even drive around on giant mechanical chickens. His stunning visual appearance may have also accounted for his oversaturation. Over the period of 1940 to 1956, the Joker made almost monthly appearances in the various Batman and associated titles of the time. These regular appearances may have contributed to his fall from grace, even before the Congressional subcommittee hearings of the early 1950s completely neutered the character. In some way, this may have actually helped. Reducing the visibility of the Joker may have helped him return to some semblance of his former glory. Throughout the 50s, for every memorable Joker story, there were three equally unmemorable ones. Whilst the 60s had no less of a success-to-failure ratio, there wasn't as many of them, and so there was less to be disappointed by. However, whatever popularity the Joker may have achieved so far, it was nothing to what was to come. The Joker's popularity meant he was a shoe in to be included as one of the main Bat-baddies in the 1966 Batman TV series, where he was portrayed by actor Cesar Romero. Despite appearing in more segments of the TV show than any other villain save the Penguin, 18 in all, a tie between the clown prince and the waddling master of foul play, one only has to look at the 1966 spin-off movie of the same name to see that the Joker was held in low regard. The plot of the movie is convoluted and ridiculous, and the Joker is a second fiddle-bad guy to the Penguin, the Riddler and Catwoman, largely there to serve tea and act befuddled. It's hard to imagine the Joker of the 1940s taking second place to anybody, least of all a Joker that challenges Batman to a surfing competition. And this was the problem with most of Romero's performances. For me, he was neither scurry nor particularly funny, easily the lesser of the main TV adversaries. The Riddler has Frank Gorshin's madcap performance going for him. Burgess Meredith managed to bring humour and fun to The Penguin and Catwoman. Well, Catwoman was Julie Newmar, so all she had to do was show up in a skin-tight cat suit, and boys across the world experienced their first sexual awakenings. But Romero's Joker was just kind of there. He's not a bad adaptation of the comics of the time, but it was never an exciting moment, even as a kid, when I tuned into the Batman TV show and it was The Joker as the special guest villain. You have nothing to say about Cesar Romero. You should have shaved. (laughs) Fur comment. All that began to change after the TV series was cancelled in 1968. Whilst the shadow of that show was long and loomed over the interpretation of comics by the mainstream for years, the comics themselves were a different beast entirely. To reinvent the Batman after the campy excesses of the 60s, Dick Grayson was sent off to college, the Batman closed up the manor and the Batcave... And a more streamlined, darker and sexier Batman was introduced. Now operating out of Gotham itself and living in the penthouse suite of Wayne Enterprises, the Batman was redefined primarily by two men. Writer, Denny O'Neill, and artist, Neil Adams. And where the Batman goes, the Joker is never far behind. If the Batman was darker and sexier, then the Joker was even more so. Following a rest period, the Joker returned... Deadlier than ever. Tonight's show, therefore, is to concentrate on a number of all-time classic Joker stories. As regular listeners to the show will know, I often have problems with lists of all-time classics or the best-ever lists as they rarely reflect comic fans' real tastes, rather a collection of the same old tired choices. However, any list of the best Batman or the best Joker stories that don't include the following issues are lists that are clearly not to be trusted. The Joker's five-way revenge saw print in Batman issue 251. Cover dated September 1973. It boasted a wonderful symbolic cover by Neil Adams of Batman pinned to a giant playing card an ace of spades, naturally as the Joker, shown as a giant towers over Gotham holding the card in his hands and laughing maniacally. Look out, Gotham! The cover screams the Joker's back in town. It has rightly become one of the most reprinted covers in comics. However, it's not the best cover from a printing of this story. I first read this in the Superheroes issue 3, which has a fully painted cover by Alan Craddock. In it, the Joker looks directly at the reader, clutching his fist and laughing even more maniacally. In the background, the Batman cape billowing, face and body almost all in shadow. It was the first time I saw Batman as the dread Avenger of the night, and it's an image that would stick. I'll put it on the show images for you to see. As a UK reprint magazine, it's oversized, and it's simply stunning monochrome. It's still how Neil Adams' Batman work should be read. Have you seen the cover to Batman 251? No. Joker's Five-Ware Revenge. But you've seen this cover to the Super Heroes number 3? Yes. What do you think of that? I love the back. Before you start, that doesn't have any of the cover copy on it. Mm. So it's just a poster. Oh, it's a brilliant
0: cover. I, I don't know, I think the Joker looks a little bit too weird. Why? It, I think it's his hair. His her is perfectly coiffed? Yeah. But he's a Joker. You turn
1: up at a barber as the Joker and <laughs> say, do my hair, good man. What are you going to do? Uh,
0: do his hair. You're going to do a damn good job of it as well, aren't you? Uh, y- yeah uh, I think that's a great cover well I don't remember. know he's not told me what he wants yet he just told me to do his <laughs> hair yes shave my hair off do I give him a, do I give him a mohawk and <laughs> that would be funny yes yes and the joke of killing you I <laughs> thought that would be equally funny the joke looks the Batman looks really good in it though I think it's a great cover this was the first issue of this I got mm. as a kid it looks, with his head and the, the moon, it looks mm. like the end credits for the animated series. It
1: does, yeah. I'd never noticed that before. It's also the first time I think I'd seen Batman drawn as a muscular man. Yeah. The, the artists that we're covering this week, Neil Adams being one of them, don't draw the Batman as being muscular. They draw him more as being lithe and more athletic yeah. and overly muscular, don't they? So it, it's not a bad interpretation by any means. I think it's a great cover. I absolutely adore it the credits for the story read simply written by Daniel Neal art by Neil Adams editing by Julius Schwartz that's it nobody lettered this no no apparently Neil Adams didn't yeah, it yeah maybe he did it's entirely everything. possible that he did everything yeah as the rain falls and the thunder cracks the police continue their work for this night a terrifying evil has been reborn for the Batman it begins with a body in the mud a grotesque smile across his face and a playing card in the dirt the sign of the Joker The dead man is Philly Jack Barton, an ex-associate of the Joker, and the Batman, fearing the Joker is killing all his old friends, heads to Packy White, an ex-boxer. The Batman convinces Paki to seek help after a brief cockfight, and Packy agrees, but before he leaves, takes a drink from the water cooler. Packy falls dead, and round one falls to the Joker. The next round also falls in the Joker's favour as the old exploding cigar trick blows ex-gang member Albie sky high, and the fourth, bigger Melvin, flees when the Batman arrives. Melvin cold-cocks the Batman and continues his flight, but is intercepted by the Joker, who leaves him hanging by the neck. The Batman makes his way to the body, but is cold-cocked again, this time by the Joker. The Batman revives, scraping some black tar off his face left by the Joker's boot, and makes his way to the last surviving member of Joker's gang, Bing Hooly. Bing, 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 Bing Hooley, Bing Hooley, Bing Hooley. Hooley <laughs> is now an OAP, and has already been released into the Joker's custody, and the Batman fears he has hit a dead end. However, he deduces the tar on his face can only be found in one place, a recently polluted beach. The Batman figured correctly, and the Joker waits at an abandoned aquarium on that beach. The Joker says he will release Hooley, who is wheelchair-bound and strapped to a platform above a shark tank, if the Batman agrees to swap places with Hooley. Batman does so, and the Joker handcuffs his hands behind his back, kicks him into the tank, and for good measure, kicks Hooley in after him. The Batman manages to rest his arms over his head and strangles the shark with his still handcuffed arms. With Hooley's life at stake, the Batman hoists Hooley's wheelchair and smashes it at the walls of the tank until it shatters, freeing both men. The Joker flees, the Batman pursues, but the Joker's head start is too large. All looks lost, but as the Joker reaches his car, he slips on the polluted sand. As the Batman hauls the Joker away, he laughs at the joke, that the Joker made him appreciate... (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: oh, how we laughed. We have also got this in Batman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, which we also have at the side of us. Which one did you read?
0: The, the colour one. Did
1: you read the colour one? Yeah. Oh, I read. I dug out my issue of the superheroes.
0: Best way to read Neil Adams. I thought the colour in this looked better than Black and White. Really? Yeah. Even in the recoloured version that that is? Especially the recoloured version.
1: Oh, man. In the early 2000s, DC reprinted all of Neil Adams' Batman work in four extortionately priced hardcovers. One of the things that made these volumes less desirable, I thought, was that the colouring was completely overhauled and recoloured. The version that's in Batman The Greatest Stories Ever Told is the recoloured version. Now, I'm not a first to computer recolouring. Marvel have printed a special issue of Spider-Man. That reprinted Amazing's Fantasy 15 and Amazing Spider-Man number one re-killered. Yeah. And Ditko's art really popped in those. I thought they did a really respectful job
0: of it. But I I didn't like this at all, the Neil Adams recolouring job. What yeah. did you like about it? I, I just thought it looks it makes it his artwork look more modern, which I thought was really good when his modern work is really bad. But the,
1: see the thing with that as well, Neil Adams' work was so different and modern in the early 70s compared to everybody else. So you're saying it the colouring makes it look more
0: contemporary? It looks more modern in reading it contemporarily. So though. what do you mean? It doesn't look as dated? Yeah. Because Adams's work is... This is... I think this can go head to toe. Well, it's, it's the modern colouring mixed with his better classic artwork. And given that his classic artwork was already ahead of its time... The colour helps it. It now looks it like a modern... Comment. Because his his current artwork is really bad. See, I disagree that it's really bad. I don't bad. think it's really bad. I think Art. there is something wrong with it that yeah. you can't point out.
1: Yes, that's exactly it. Some artists will go on this career evolution. Burns done it, John Romita Jr.'s done yeah. it, and Adams has done it. And what happens is, technically, they may evolve into better artists. But there's something about their evolution that you, as a reader, don't get on board with. Yeah. And I think I'm that way with Neil Adams. I don't think his current art is anywhere bad at art. I'd kill to be able to draw like Neil Adams. Mm. But yeah, there's just something. It's really stiff as well. Yeah, there's something about it that it's not as fluid as this. Yeah. It's not as dynamic as this. It doesn't tell the story as well as this. It seems too busy. It's like he studied at Jim Lee's feet of cross-hatching with lots of lines. Mm. But Adams didn't need to do that. Adam was an excellent storyteller before that. And I always get the feeling Jim Lee's covering up for some of his deficiencies with all his line work. Mm. But that's just me. I, I, I don't think Jim Lee's that great of a sequential comics artist. I think he used to be. You think he was better? But you're the guy who said to me that you think
0: Jim Lee's art now looks dated. No, um he looks like he's obviously trying to stick to a monthly schedule. See, back when he was doing Hush and For Tomorrow, it looked, and all as well, it looked really, really good with all of his cross-hatching and detail. And because he started now, with a big
1: lead time.
0: Yeah, but what he's doing now to keep up with a monthly schedule, he's not putting any of that detail or hatching into it, which doesn't look as good to his, as his earlier stuff. Well, these mm. earlier DC stuff anyway.
1: Alright, no, fair enough. See, I was never I was never the Jim Lee booster that a lot of people were anyway. Yeah. I always thought it was pretty mm. but pretty vacant, to quote the Sex Pistols. It was nice. Yeah. But I never I'd never got engrossed in a Jim Lee comic boot. They always looked like they were models
0: standing around looking pretty. They no. never felt like real people in a real story. I really liked his older stuff, <laughs> his earlier DC stuff. Anyway, his Marvel stuff is yeah. You you're not talking about his X Men run. Yeah, but for, for DC, his, his early stuff was far better than what it is now. Be, yeah. Just because he's sticking to a multi schedule, which is what people want.
1: Well, I I think you must be the first person I have read or heard anywhere that says they prefer this recoloured version of Neil Adams'
0: album. So for plenty yet? Maybe that's because I didn't I wasn't reading the Neil Adams stuff at the time. Well, I have often wondered,
1: is my prejudice for Adams' work in black and white simply because that's what I read at that critical age of what will I have been when I got this, 11, 12, something like Mm. that. It came out in 1981, so yeah, I'll have been 11. And they printed an awful lot of Neil Adams' stuff in this book, in this comic. Yeah. So my exposure to it was black and white. And then in 1989, when the Tim Burton movie came out, they did a Titan did a reprinted Batman graphic novel series. Yeah. That was a lot of Adams' stuff in black and white. Stalker, Knights of the Stalker, was in one of those as well. Was in one yeah. of those volumes. They had introductions by people like Jonathan Ross and Neil Gaiman and stuff like that. But they were black and white. Mm. And I do I do sometimes wonder if my prejudice is for Adams in black and white because that's what I grew up reading. Yeah. Adams in color just looks wrong to me.
0: Well. Comparing them here, the the black and white one looks really empty.
1: The black Whereas... and white printing in some of the pages in this, I'll give you, isn't great. If we look at page two, we compare and contrast between the graphic novel and this. There are certain panels that do look a little bit inky. Yeah. A little bit too black. But I think that splash page, which is excellent, the Joker driving through the rain... Uh, the rain bouncing off the windscreen as he laughs at his recent actions which was of course murder the ha ha ha's just surrounding him just adding to the whole
0: magnificence of the layout I think the black and white version of that is much preferable to the colour version I think the colour's better okay fair yeah, enough well like I said about it being empty it just looks really flat whereas with the colour one you can see all the lights and the rain and the joker and the shadow I think it stands out a lot more with the colour
1: do you not think the the colour there though is carrying
0: the art in a way that the art didn't need it to. The no. coloring's flashy. Yeah, it's flashy. Yeah, but I think that's that's helping it because the black and white one just looks flat. It's still a good splash page. It's a good picture, but it it looks flat compared to the color. Right, see, I totally disagree. I think that splash page looks magnificent in black and
1: white. All right, fair enough. Like I say, you're the first person I've ever said, ever heard say <laughs> prefers the computerized coloring of Neil Adams's work. Well someone's got to like it yeah okay fair enough there's, there's that boat <laughs> and there's the island that you're on yeah. and that boat's sailing away and you're on the island going oh, wait for me and now you've got to be Oliver Queen okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a decent origin yeah now, you, now you've got to my Go. name's Oliver Queen and I like to Nealine's Colony
1: for my transgressions I was left on the island <laughs> Alright, carrying on with the the story discussion. Batman just surmises that the Joker is killing his old partners as one of them wronged him. He never actually deduces that, does he?
0: Mm. He
1: never actually works that out, which eliminates a decent detective problem I would have liked to have seen him work out. I'd have liked to have seen him deduce that. Yeah. Um, And I was going to say, but this is only a 16-page story, but it's actually a 23-page story, isn't it? Mm. This is quite a lengthy story for the time period. Uh, He does just make the leap... On page two, that the Joker is out to kill all his old gang members, which again, I would have preferred Batman deduced that. But thinking about it, it's likely that Batman was responsible for them turning on the Joker. Yeah. The Batman may have got one of these men to turn state evidence on the Joker, but it does beg the question of why they're not now in witness protection, mm. if that's the case. So, I mean, we never find out if any of these people did actually betray the Joker, do we? Yeah. I mean, I suppose it doesn't matter to the Joker. He doesn't care, does he? He, he knows is. somebody betrayed him. But we just don't know who. Yeah, I mean, if he has to kill them all. Because we never find out which one of these four did. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. We never well, find out. The this... team, but if he kills yeah. them all. Well, well that's safe. what I'm saying. He doesn't care. <laughs> he knows one of them betrayed him, kills them all. Yeah. He doesn't give a rat's ass. But we, as a reader, never find out if this was even true. We don't know if one of these people informed on the Joker. We don't find it, which one it was. Like the Joker, we, we just don't care. Because <laughs> ultimately that's not what the story's about. No. The story's about redefining the Joker for the modern age, at that point, 1970s. Hmm.
0: What I really had a problem with this story, though, was I, was I thought the art was really, it looked very modern, whereas the dialogue was just too stiff way too stiff I have heard people complain about that I mean again the, the captions the narrative it's all well done but the dialogue itself is really stiff <sighs> yes twisted and a hideous grin ghastly I wish that Batman was here what would arrive I've been here for 10 minutes. Blast it, Batman. Must you constantly startle me? Sorry, sir. I wanted to examine the scene undisturbed. Well, what do you make of it? I'm afraid there's
1: no question of who committed the crime. The dead man's grin is the trademark of only one criminal. And to clinch it, I found this nearby. A Joker. See, I... uh, I have heard... There is a podcast called Uncovering the Bronze Age, which Emma Lee Middleton does, Mm. and she's done a couple of Denny and Neil stories, and she's mentioned that the dialogue is less than flowing. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a problem with it when it's Batman. I had much more of a problem with it in those Green Arrow, Green Lantern stories by the same team. Yeah. And again, I just wonder if that's my prejudice. Mm. This is what I grew up reading. This was... I don't want to say this was my first Joker story, because I can't swear to it, but I know it was certainly my first... Yeah, one of them. And I think it was certainly my first Joker as insane murderer story that I ever read. I don't think the dialogue is as bad as you're making it out. It is a little bit on the
0: nose. Yeah. I'll give you that. But some of it, I think, flows quite well. Well... There are bits of dialogue that I did really like, like in the boxing scene. Yeah, and the boxing scene. On, yeah. like, oh, sorry, oh, perfectly fine. Yeah, perfectly understandable. <laughs> Yeah, the scene
1: with Paddy on pages three through five is really good. Because in one of the first examples of this, really, the art and the story are doing two different things. Mm. We're not getting that situation where the dialogue and the captions are telling us what we're looking at which did occasionally get really irritating I can see what's happening in the pictures yeah give me something else the dialogue is a simple back and forth between the two about the Joker's coming out to kill you and Packy is sparring and he asks Batman to hold his bag and Packy keeps hitting Batman by mistake yeah in inverted commas until Batman's
0: had enough and just starts returning the blows but I like how he's doing it whilst carrying the conversation like it's, it's a game to him yeah that's what I'm saying I thought the dialogue in this scene
1: was pretty good yeah I didn't think this was stiff at all and I, I love Batman just Batman's had enough by page 4 and he just kicks the crap out of Packy mm. doesn't he and then Packy's like oh alright ok
0: I like how Batman's playing him from the beginning yeah it's perfectly alright think nothing on it you know nothing's happening here whilst I'm punching you out yeah well I got the feeling this guy may have been a light middleweight at some point
1: yeah but he's no match for Batman because he's the goddamn Batman, isn't he? <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, just coming back, Batman basically tells Commissioner Gordon to back off. Yeah. Doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Batman tells the police commissioner, my case, Leave it back up. off. <laughs> and Commissioner Gordon's like, okay. If it's <laughs> chief of just bugger off home, do they? <laughs> um, I did like, as well, Batman's frustration with Packy's death. He kicks the bucket. And he kicks the bucket symbolism. Yeah. He kicks over the water bucket that Packy drank from that was laced with Joker venom. Mm. Which, I love that scene. I thought that was really good. But, when he kicks the bucket over, he says, round one goes to the Joker. Surely it's round two.
0: Yeah. Not round one, because he's already killed Philly Jack at this point. Well, maybe now Batman knows the game is now afoot. Does he? Yes. The game's on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the Joker scene with Albi, which is on the next page, is great. He kills Albi with an exploding cigar. And it's funny, but it suffers from Return of the Jedi Syndrome. If we turn the page and have a look at the top of page seven, from our point of view, the Joker blows up the entire room. We, we see it blow out the window yeah. with such force that it destroys the window and the window frame. We clearly see the window frame as being damaged. But in the next panel, the Joker just casually walks out of the room. Mm. I suppose the implication is that the cigar exploded backwards from him having it in his mouth, blowing Albie's head off with such force that it shattered the window as well. But when the Joker walks out of the room in the next panel, it's quite clearly all on fire. Maybe the Joker's fireproof. Maybe he did a light jog. (laughs) So he jogged out the room, but yeah. then just before we get to see him, he slows down and looks casual.
0: He's, he's got an image to maintain. He does, and he's dressed very well. He looks, he's dressed like it's the 70s. Well, it was the 70s. He looks looked like the 70s. Is he wearing floors though? He's kind of wearing a little bit of flos. He's wearing a very, he's wearing his very natty purple suit
1: The, the Joker's wearing shirt. That's yeah. not, you know, it's the 70s. But he's got a long trench coat on as well. I think he looks pretty natty. <laughs> To be honest, I think he looks pretty damn good. He's the Huggy bur of Batman villains, isn't he? What's happening? We're on the street. joker is Huggy Burr. That's right, tickled us, hadn't it? Uh, I did think that um, the bigger Melvin scene is quintessential Batman. Melvin thinks that the Batman's after him because he's mugged some in Gotham Park. He doesn't think he's there to help him. So he leaps out of his trailer, he runs through a storeyard, jumps over a wall, goes under the docks, then through a sewer pipe for a few blocks, pops up a mile away from his place, and Batman's just
0: there waiting for him. Mm. The the dialogue in this, though, is also very stiff. But how he's saying, dive into the sewer pipe, crawl a couple of blocks underground, come out a good mile uh, from the joint... And it's alright reading that, because the panels, we can see him travelling a mile in three panels. But he's crawling through a pipe in three panels. So does he wait <laughs> un- until certain <laughs> dedicated parts, <laughs> until he thinks to himself?
1: Yeah, Once, in, it's not so much the dialogue in the sense that you didn't actually need that dialogue. Yeah. The art is showing, this is what I was just talking about. I'll duck around these crates, he's thinking, we can see as him. he's ducking around some yeah. crates. Go over the warehouse wall. <laughs> and we can see him. And then I'll slip under the docks, <laughs> and we can see him going under the docks. It's, you don't need any of those speech balloons. Mm. So the only one you need is the one in the last panel where he says, I'm a good mile away from my joint here. There's no way in hell Batman could, and then turn the page, and there's Batman. Yeah. That's the only part. So well, I disagree that it's stiff, it's not necessary. You mm. could have just completely left those and just let the art carry the story, though. But I do lo- I love his face. Come on, Neil Adams does a great face on Bigger Melvin at the top of page nine where the Batman's behind him and mm. just goes, as I was saying. And he's like, ah! <laughs> I like that. I thought that was pretty funny. Do you know, it sure was lucky that the Joker killed these men in the order that Batman was going to see him. Yeah. Wasn't it? No. That was a real stroke of luck for the Batman. It was planned. Yeah, totally. Um, As a kid, there were two shots on page 10 here that I absolutely adored. I thought these were fantastic. The first one is panel three, at the top of the page, where the Joker is just stood in the shadow behind Melvin, smiling. Mm. And it's like, the intent there is clear. You know this guy's not living out the page. Yeah. Which I thought was fun. I love that panel as a kid. I still love it now. But the one that gave me chills... I mean, it probably didn't mean anything to you in the, the this line. era of well, being people being gutted in the back.
0: I, I actually thought it might be it was a little bit. I thought it might have been a little bit too much for this. Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I suppose we about to say the last panel of the page is just Melvin's feet hanging from the top of the panel as Batman bursts in because the Joker's hung him. Yeah. And as a kid, I just looked at that panel and got oh, okay. Mm. That was, that was chilling stuff. Yeah. Because you got to remember comics weren't all about cutting people, stabbing people through the back
0: and sticking people in fridges in 1980. Yeah, especially when the feet are in the foreground. Yeah. It's a great panel. I think that's. I really like the cape edge on these pages. Yeah, I really like how you can see his shoulders before the cape flows out, and how on this panel on page ten you can see it go over his. Yeah, legs. where the Batman's knocked out and picking himself off the floor. The one where the Batman's being knocked out for the third time of the issue. Yeah, so well, far, I
1: love. He brings it up himself. Yeah, that he, he he brings this up himself later on. He points out that everybody seems to be knocking him out, and he's getting a bit pissed off with <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> to be honest with you. I look. It's very Jim Rockford. Mm. Jim Rockford was always having little ice packs on his head and going why does this keep happening to me (laughs) and I I do like that I do do think that was really good that the Batman was pointing out that I keep getting knocked out this isn't good enough Mm. Uh, I thought that was really good there's another quintessential Batman Joker relationship page on page 11 the Joker's managed to cold cock the Batman punched him around the back of the head and then kicks him in the face knocking him out cold the Batman's prone on the floor and the Joker just puts his foot on his neck knowing that he could crush it he could crush his neck here. Batman's dead he never has to worry him again worry about him again but where's the fun in that? Mm. the Joker's not about killing him by accident or on accident as you used to say when you were little (laughs) there has to be something to it the Joker's quite happy to kill him if it's at the end of a battle of wills that he emerges triumphant from I love that. I thought that was, that's the Joker, that's Batman. Mm. It's absolutely perfect. I adored it a great deal. Uh, Page 13, the Batman goes to find Bing Hooley. And he uses, Neil Adams uses a photo of a church instead of drawing one. And it's alright. It's It's not as effective as Kirby's photo collages, or when Byrne and McFarlane and Larson, etc., would manipulate a photo to look like a comics panel. What does it look like
0: in the coloured version? It's just like a coloured photo.
1: Right. Yeah. See, in the black and white version, it's quite clearly a photo, isn't it? The colouring kind of makes it look less like a photo. still looks like one, but... But it's not as prominent as it is here. Yeah. In the black and white one, it looks like Batman is literally walking in front of a photo of a church. Which Mm -hmm. he is.
0: It looks kind of a bit disappointing compared to that close-up of Batman next to it, though. Yeah,
1: the close-up of Batman is awesome. My only complaint with that one is he's chopped the top of his ears off. I'd have let that bleed through so his ears was coming up through the panel. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that would have been excellent. But, yeah, it's here that he realises where the black tar on his face comes from. Mm. And he's like, I've, I've been so busy chasing around,
0: I've not seen the obvious, which is the black goo I mean, you that know, he wiped off his face earlier on. You know what that page panel actually reminds me of? What? Jim Lee, with his scratchy hatching. yeah. Well, maybe Jim Lee's a big Neil
1: Adams fan, I don't know. Could be. Maybe if Jim Lee came into comics in the 90s, it is possibly grew up with comics
0: in the 70s, isn't it? Mm. So, I don't know, because I don't know how old Jim Lee was when he got into comics. You know, it also is a very big sign of the times. What? The 70s Batmobile. Oh, I love his Batmobile. I really this. like it as well. It, it just looks like a normal car with a bat on it, but it's, it's very 70s It's as well. a 70s muscle car,
1: which yeah. you can't go wrong with. But... It looks like a car that a relatively normal person would drive. I
0: like how when you see the inside and the steering wheel, it's not his big gadgety, red-lit cockpit it is now. No,
1: well, to me, the various Batmobiles do occasionally come across as a little ostentatious for someone
0: who's pretending to be an urban myth probably around the time Miller did yeah so night.
1: the fact that he, essentially what he's driving around here is a, is a bog standard car that he's probably bought off the rack and spray just painted it it, yeah. it, spray painted a bat on it just because you know Batman's whimsical <laughs> like that and away you go that, yeah viewed from today's vantage point the, the the Joker leaving goo on Batman's face and that being the only place where they've had a recent oil spill seems a little packed yeah Batman gets there though the Joker is clearly expecting him yeah. Because he's Batman. And obviously the Joker's expecting him to find him. But the Joker doesn't leave any other clues to his whereabouts. Well, if he, he wanted... Didn't. Well, if he wanted Batman to find him, which he clearly does... Yeah. You'd have thought he would have signposted a little bit more. Give him a fish. Yeah, possibly. Because the Joker couldn't have known... That he was going to run into Batman at Bigger Melvin's place. Therefore, he couldn't have known that when he kicks him in the face he's going to leave that goo all over him. The Batman running into Joker at Bigger Melvin's
0: caravan, trailer yeah. park, whatever it was, was happenstance. All right, so he has the goo on his feet because he's, he's walking around the beach. Yes. Okay, so it's stuck to him anyway. Yeah. But then when he kicks Batman, it gets on him. Yes. And then when he stood on top of him with his foot on his neck, he sees him and goes, ah, oh, there's a bit of goo on him. Ah, okay. So you're basically saying that he deliberately left it the... I'm saying that he, he deliberately... I think that's yeah, a stretch. Yeah, let's go for that, yeah. Because uh, clearly the Joker wants him to find him here, doesn't he? Because he bumped into him by accident. If he didn't bump into him then, then he would have... Then he wouldn't he, have been bothered. He would have left him a hint at the next murder.
1: All right, fair, well, this was the next murder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All
1: right, fair enough. All right, I'll go with that. Um, the fight in the shark tank is one of the most memorable moments in Batman and Joker history. Because Batman gets out of it using his brain. Not shark-repellent. Not shark-repellent bat spray. No. So. I was disappointed at actually. That he didn't have yes. shark-repellent. Well, there's a reason for that, which we will come to in a bit. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, you can question whether Batman gets, can get up enough leverage to smash the wheelchair against the side of the tank, can't you? With water resistance yeah. and everything. But the way he moves from problem to problem... He deals with the shark, and then he escapes, and then he's looking after Hula, and then he's taking down the Joker. Mm. So Denny O'Neill is essentially piling problem after problem after problem on Batman, and Batman's just dealing with him one after one after one straight through. A mini gauntlet. Yeah, and he's going, "I'll deal with that problem." And you can see the way he's compartmentalising his mind. Yeah. All right, I've got all these things to deal with. That's the most important. Sorting out the shark, so we get that first. Then I've got to get Hooli out of the tank. Well, how do I go about that? Ah, the wheelchair. And you can actually see him thinking it through. Yeah.
0: It's, it's really brutal how he deals with a shark as well. Yes.
1: Yeah, he kills the shark. Yeah. There's, there's no two ways about it. Batman wraps the um, handcuffs through the shark's mouth and he pulls back and he snaps the shark's jaw. Which, compared to the animated series yes. laughing fish yeah well we'll, make, we'll we will talk about the laughing fish uh, episode of the animated series at the end of the show mm. but yeah it, which it, I didn't
0: know there were two separate events what I, the, I, the episode adapts this and laughing yeah. fish yeah did you not know that no alright oh, well now looking at this now I know that in that final crisis issue of Batman they do reference yes this. there's a shot of him fighting the shark isn't there
1: yeah yeah I noticed that when I read final crisis I also like that when he's chasing the Joker, uh, Batman mentally points out that after two blows to the head and the fight with the shark and escaping from the tank, he's really not up to an extended chase over a beach, Mm. which I thought was a really realistic depiction of Batman. And if you compare this to the almost godlike version of recent vintage yeah, it's a marked contrast, isn't it? This is a very human Batman. Although Scott Snyder seems to be moving away from God-like Batman. Yeah, which I, for one, I'm, uh, I'm quite glad about. To
0: be honest with you, hmm. I know it was Grant Morrison shtick, but,
1: but I it think it that's works been well done. With Morrison, yeah, it's been done. So yeah.
0: Let's let's do something else. Now. Well, apparently Morrison said to um, Snyder, "Everyone, every writer has their own Batman." That's fair enough. Every reader has their own Batman. Yeah. Don't they? Mm-hmm. This is mine. Yeah. Yours is something else. Mm-hmm. So Probably the Morrison one. Probably the Grand Morrison one. You know one. what else I just noticed, though? Well, the shark on your, in the black and white one is just a blank white shark, whereas it's got stripes on it in the colour yeah, one. Yeah,
1: in the colour one they've added detail to him, haven't they?
0: Yeah. I wonder if that was Adam's tinkering with his artwork. Could be. Because
1: I've, I've not got any of the expensive hardcovers. covers. But Mm. my understanding is he went back and redrew some of the panels as well. Yeah. Which people got really annoyed about. And rightly so. You know, this George lucas
0: of past work Mm. does annoy people. Well, there's got to be another reason to buy an expensive hardback or something Uh, you already have. Well,
1: see, sometimes I don't mind it. I've got to be brutally honest, none of the changes in Star Wars I find egregious... Except for the Han Solo scene. Yeah. And I find the Han Solo scene egregious, not because he's done it, and done it badly, which he has. The special effects, they really are appalling. But doing that, he changes the character. None of his other little tinkerings change the character or the story. So there's a couple more Rontos when they go, look, sir, droids. And so when he comes into Moss Island, there's that comedy beat of the guy smacking the little robot over the head. It doesn't change the story, mm. but changing Han just blasting the guy to being self defence changes Han's character arc. Yeah. So he doesn't go from being a selfish bastard in the first film to being a guy who will put others before himself by the end of the film. Mm. If he's only acting in self-defence at the beginning of the film, he's not a total bastard. Yeah. So that's my objection to the hand-shoots-first thing, that it changes the character motivation and the story. Mm. Whereas the other tinkerings are all just tinkerings. I don't give a that there's more (laughs) windows in Cloud City. I don't care. Yeah. Some of them actually look quite nice. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the phallic thing now coming out of the Sarlacc's mouth is a little dubious. But it doesn't alter the story. So yeah. none of those really... But I never really got bent out of shape about some of the, ch- the changes to the special edition other than that one.
0: Yeah. Well, I, th- I think if there's, a, if there's a reason why they've gone back and changed things, if there must be a reason why. Yeah. And I kind of like it as well because that way it's another reason to buy something you already have. Well, the shirt does have more definition in the colour one. I'll give you that.
1: And start at the Motion Picture is another example. The director went back and fixed a lot of the goofs in Star Trek the motion picture yeah, because he had to release it on this date and the date that he had to release the film by he hadn't finished the film so it wasn't as perfected as he no, wanted so it. all he's done in that is he's fixed there's a shot of Spock on Vulcan where there's no background because yeah. they didn't have time to do special effects so in the DVD release he's painted digitally painted in a background right. so it doesn't affect the film He's just finally gone, look, I've got the special effect that I wanted 30 years ago. Mm. So in that case, I think that version of Star Trek, the motion picture, is the best version. But anyway, we're just talking about different versions now. Speaking of shark repellent bat spray, to bring us back on topic, this scene here in the shark tank has one of the most notorious goofs in comics. Right. When the Joker pushes Batman into the tank, in my copy, in The Superheroes, which I have here, lovely listeners, he's wearing his utility belt.
0: hmm
1: Okay? When he finishes off the shark on page 19, however... There's the utility belt, though. The belt is nowhere to be seen on the very next page. The yeah. utility belt has disappeared. However, in my copy of the greatest Joker stories ever told, from 1988, the belt... ...has been drawn on... ...quite badly... Yeah. ...it has to be said... ...all the way through the story. Right. Conversely... ...in Batman The Greatest Stories Ever Told... ...which is what you've got though ...from re-coloured. 2005... Yeah. ...the recoloured one, yeah... ...the opposite tack has been taken... ...and they've completely removed the belt... ...for the duration of the story. Yeah. The minute the Batman gets pushed into the tank... ...by the Joker... ...the belt's not there anymore. Yeah. So turn the page... Belt's gone. Yeah. So the obvious implication here is that Denny O'Neill wanted the Joker to remove the belt. A smart tactic, just Mm -hmm. in case he's got shark repellent bat spray (laughs) in the utility belt. And somewhere along the line, either at editorial or at art level, that got forgotten. So it's interesting that the two different reprints of this we have... Yeah. they've both fixed that problem but both have fixed it differently mm. which is quite interesting of course all this belt malarkey has caused other issues over the year page 21 which is quite possibly one of the single best pieces of Batman art ever of him running across the beach is incomplete as the waist is absent belt this has led to the image being used a number of times over the years as promotional art but with the belt drawn back on Uh, They've also got round that a couple of times by actually just redrawing it completely. Neil Adams has drawn a version of that for the cover of the hardcovers. Dick Giordano has done a a version of it for um, maybe one of the power records in the 70s. And John Cassidy did a god-awful homage to it in Batman Planetary.
0: Remember that? It's
1: stiff as a board. It really is. I mean, John Cassidy's a good. I don't think he's great. As lots of other people do. I think when we covered Superman... Was it Grounded he did the covers for? Yeah. I think I mentioned in there that I'm not the biggest John
0: Cassidy fan in the world. Once again, it's his earlier stuff, which is better. Is it? Yeah. Is
1: it? Because his earlier planetary stuff was alright, wasn't it? I still think he's stiff as a board, though. Yeah. I really do. I
0: think he's a, he's a meticulous and detailed artist, but it's... Just... I like his different art styles. so like he's pa- He's painted smooth stuff to his more scratchy... Yeah, I like, yet, I like his,
1: his way he can differentiate.
0: Yeah. But I think he's wooden as hell. Yeah, that depends on the story. He's more suited to something like Planetary than Superman. Yeah. Yeah, his Superman is what god awful. Uh, anyway, we're not, we're not doing that.
1: We're not doing the John Cassidy <laughs> part. If you like John Cassidy, send hate mail to HeyKidsComics at virginmedia.com. <laughs> Tell me why I'm wrong. Lots of people like, like doing that. Um, in the final analysis, this is Tame. By today's standards, after all the Joker's body count, it's only four people. But this nevertheless earns its place in the pantheon of great Joker stories from its
0: positioning. So it's not a five-way revenge then, is it? It's a four-way revenge. It is. It is a four-way revenge. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Title's wrong then, isn't it? Yeah. That's really the entire
1: story then. <laughs> yes, yeah. Moving on. You know, uh, it's positioning in the in the comics publishing pantheon is after two decades of a Joker that was neither threatening nor scary. O'Neill manages to resurrect the murderous clown with a wicked sense of humour in a scant 23 pages. As someone who was introduced to this dark, murderous version of the Joker via this story in the early 80s, it's no wonder I have problems identifying with the softer, more madcap version. Not to be outdone, Adams' visuals shine. His Joker is the long-faced version, tall and skinny, and all the more chilling for that. His constant laughing. Expertly shown on the exquisitely designed splash page becomes chilling rather than comforting. There are problems. The Joker's plan seems a little indefined, as we never learn if any of these people did really grass on the Joker. Likewise, as mentioned, it's real lucky the Joker kills these men in the order he does or the Batman has no trail to follow. The continuity problems also irritate, but the climax is both exciting, with O'Neill adding problem on top of problem for the Batman to solve, and humorous as Batman finds the pollution angle funny, whilst the Joker loses his sense of humour when it's not in his favour.
0: A return to greatness for the Clown Prince of Crime. What did you think of it? I really liked it. It's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. I could get past the dialogue. Well, it's
1: a Bronze Age comic.
0: It's, it's, it's of its era.
1: Yeah. it was. It's completely different to what Marvel was doing mm. in the Bronze Age, which is why I have my own Ages for Marvel. but Anyway, for those that care, this issue of the superheroes also published the Superman story, World Beneath the North Pole. And the Green Lantern story, S.O.S. Green Lantern. Probably the first time I read both of these. There doesn't seem to be many adverts in it. It's adverts for all the 1981 annuals, which this year were Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman. Which is pretty, uh, pretty cool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Moving on. Next up, Laughing Fish. Originally published in Detective Comics issue 475. Cover dated February 78. With a cover by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. The cover is not in my two copies of this story. Which are The Strange Apparitions Trade and the Batman Pocketbook number 2 from 1980. Although the Pocketbook does have an amended version. The Joker holds two fish pointing them at Batman like guns. Both fish have the Joker grins on them. Hands up, Batman, I've got you covered, says the Joker as the caption asks. What is the secret of the Joker's new creation? The Laughing Fish. My pocketbook removes the background, which is a clock, and the dialogue and the caption, and just replaces it with the macabre Master of Mirth strikes again. Either way, pretty damn good cover. I like this. This pocketbook was released in 1978. It's Batman pocketbook number two. I read this. It's not in great shape, is it? No. Because I did read this till it felt a bit. And it's been through you. And it's and been another. through you and your brother. Yeah, both you and Adam have read this. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, Adam read a comic. Adam, well, His bookmark was halfway through. <laughs> he's read half of it. He read half, half, half of it, it. so he didn't even get to laughing fish. Uh, the laughing fish was written by Steve Engelhart with art and colours by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. Ben Oda lettered. Julius Schwartz edited. After a visit with Bruce Wayne's girlfriend, Silver St. Cloud, to ascertain if she knows that Bruce is the Batman, the dread Avenger of the Night retreats to the shadows to think. His night is spoiled by a late-night trawlerman whose nightly haul of fish all bear the rictus grin of the Joker. The Batman learns it is the same up and down the land. Joker fish are everywhere. So much so that the next morning at the Copyright Commission, the Joker tries to apply for a patent for the Joker fish. A nickel for every fish sandwich, 50 cents for a fillet of soul. After all, if Colonel Watts' name can copyright chicken, what can the Joker copyright fish? The Copyright Commissioner tells him that that's impossible. Fish are a natural resource. The Joker warns him he has until midnight to make it so, or he'll be dead as a mackerel. The Joker next drops by Rupert Thorne to warn him that the recent bid on the Batman's secret ID is being monitored by him. The Joker doesn't want Batman's secret identity known, and if Thorne doesn't know, then it's his lucky day. Thorne snaps and flees, terrified that Hugo Strange, the man who was selling the secret and whom he had killed, may not be dead after all, or at least his ghost may yet live. The bat signal flashes across the Gotham night, midnight, and the Joker's deadline approaches. The Batman and the Gotham City Police Department try their best to protect the Copyright Commissioner, G. Carl Francis, but despite the meticulous protection, the Joker manages to kill Francis. The TV burrs another warning. If the Joker doesn't get his copyright by 3am, another man will die. Rupert Thorne drives through the same night, stopping only to pick up a hitchhiker. Silver, St. Cloud... Uh, absolutely gorgeous splash page opens the issue remove the captions and thought balloons and this is an utterly magnificent poster The Batman is quite small on the page, stood atop a brown stone, looping his back rope through his fingers as he prepares to throw it across the street and swing into the night. The clouds roll in and are beautifully coloured, as is the night sky which is dark blue. The level of detail on the surrounding buildings is impressive as are the little touches like the US flag and the Gotham flag fluttering in the wind, and the Batman's shadow falling over the building across the way. Crucially though, it's not a pin-up page. As mentioned, Batman is doing something, not just posing in. And it's a part of the story, while still being a wonderful piece of artwork.
0: Notice the little fish at the bottom.
1: Oh yeah! Do you know I did not notice that? Yeah, there is a little fish on the billboard below. Like, um, I presume
0: it's a fish shop of some description. Yeah, that's really cool. The joke is in there at the moment. Batman is stood right on top of the joke. Doesn't realise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, as per a lot of
1: UK reprints, this was slightly edited to fit the page count. But in this case, it actually made sense. All these stories had to fit into the 100-page limit that they had for these pocketbooks. It starts with The Dead Yet Live, omitting Engelhart's earlier stories with Walt Simonson, but ends with Sign of the Joker, omitting the Marshall Rogers stories that he did with Len Wein after Engelhart left. Egmont, the UK publisher, were trying to make this entire run of comics work as a seamless whole and for the most part it works closing pages and some splashes are omitted to cause the action to flow better sadly whilst it does make the story flow from one to the other easier this splash page was one of the casualties Mm. which is quite sad because it is an awesome splash page the scene with Silver St. Cloud is exceptionally well done. Silver wearing nothing but a towel is exceptionally sexy. But Rogers and Austin do excellent things with the body language. Silver yes, is. That is just his utility belt. It is, yes. Well, that's why he's covering himself with the cape. <laughs> he doesn't want a scene that he's got a raging bat boner. <laughs> a bat boner. A bat boner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, Silver is tentative. And covers herself up. The Batman has just dropped in on her unannounced after all. And she really makes eye contact, which is difficult, I grant you, as this is the Batman with the white eye slit. Batman is confident to begin with, but becomes tentative and awkward as the conversation progresses, and this is well conveyed throughout the artwork. Batman even doubts if Silver knows his secret and realises he's made a grievous tactical error. Some
0: excellent capage as well. Mm as there was in the Neil Adams issue. I like the awkwardness of this conversation. Yeah. They both know that each other know, but they don't really know if each other knows. It's kind of awkward when they're both talking to each other knowing who each other is, Yeah. they actually wanted to say that they know who each other is. Yeah, it's brilliantly done, isn't it? Absolutely magnificent. This is sitcom stuff. And it's great,
1: though. This, yeah. this was this was DC doing Marvel as soap opera and actually doing it better.
0: Yeah, I, I still don't know what I think of Batman going around with the ladies
1: I don't mind. I mean, as the stories progress, as we go
0: along, we'll we'll see. He's had three or four different regular yeah, girlfriends, but when when he's he's being all softy and mushy and yeah, I didn't mind this
1: because again, this was a very early story, and I interpreted Silver as being his one true love. Yeah. And because the other comics I was reading at the time were the 80s American ones, whereas this was significantly earlier. this was only about 77, wasn't it? 78. Mm. So it wasn't that old at the time that we got this in 1981. At the time I was reading him, he was dating Selena Kyle. Yeah. So the fact that this was a Batman who dated lots of pretty women, I just assumed that was normal. You know? Why not? You're the Batman. Well. He's got a body like that. You're going to want women to, you know. Women are going to be looking at him and going, hey! Uh, Also on this page, read the story by Steve Englehart. Has been slid in on a billboard behind Batman. Yeah. As he swings over to Silver's house. That was removed in my pocketbook. And a caption in there saying, the next night was placed in. To establish that this was carrying straight on from the Deadshot Ricochet. But wasn't happening in the same evening.
0: Which you can listen to in our previous Batman episodes, yeah, because we cover Batman an awful
1: lot, because Batman's dead popular with the yes, down yes.
0: <laughs>
1: We are mercenary. We, we are. Uh, yes. Page five of this story is absolutely gorgeous. The Batman swings around the city and Rogers and Austin make this absolutely believable and realistic. The body language looks like Batman is swinging, his muscles contract and expand as his live body moves. His swinging is fluid and effective and it's a simply stunning piece of art. Absolutely magnificent. From a writing point of view, this is also an interesting page. The Batman is thinking about Silver knowing and if he should confirm her suspicions. There's a reference to Magda and Hugo Strange finding out the secret in the earlier story The Dead Yet Live and I Am the Batman and how the Batman shed no tears when he learned they were dead. Which plays into what we talked about when we did those favourite Batman stories episodes. That Batman will not kill And he will not kill someone directly. He doesn't care if someone does. But yeah, but he's not broken up about it. If in the course of doing his job, bad people come to be killed, yeah, either by their own actions or by the actions of someone who isn't Batman. I also love the line, "My world goes crazy sometimes." Mm. That's an understatement, isn't it, (laughs) for the Batman? Basketful of Joker fish is hysterical. Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes. <laughs> I honestly did think that was really, really funny. They fish look pretty creepy on their own, though. Now they've got the Joker Now they've got on. Joker faces, yeah.
1: Absolutely fantastic. As someone as did... I was re- When I was doing the research for this... I forget where it was, lovely listeners, so you'll have to forgive me. But when I was doing the research for this, somebody had pointed out some nitpickery that fish that smile... And have teeth that are two completely different kinds of fish or something. I forget yeah. exactly what it was. So this isn't possible. Maybe these are piranha. Well, I was just like, that's, that's your problem with <laughs> <laughs> what's well, possible. That's your breaking point. That's your suspension of disbelief <laughs> in a Batman comic.
0: Well, people like the fish. Yes.
1: Yeah, well, they're an actual resource. As, uh, as the commissioner points out. Uh, the Joker entering the copyright commissioner's <laughs> office is one of those definitive... Joker images. A full page long panel on the left, with four panels down the side on the right. It's the Joker walking in and laughing and dropping a playing card, because again,
0: he wants the Batman to know that this is him. Hmm. I I loved that page. I thought the dialogue in it was hilarious.
1: Yeah, when... uh Carl
0: Francis, go yeah. on,
1: because this is your favourite scene.
0: Good Lord, Well, <laughs> And the Joker turns around and goes, what? <laughs> he jumps and the next one he's all casual. Oh, just a phrase, eh? <laughs> yes. See, that's my point. The Joker should be funny. Yeah. I like
1: when the Joker is funny. You should be laughing at him whilst at the same time being a little
0: worry of him. Mm. I-, I did laugh out loud. When you I- read that? I- I- Adam turned around and looked confused. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I can understand how he would be confused. (laughs) Rogers and uh, Austin also pay tribute to The Man Who Laughs, which we mentioned in last week's episode, is the 1927 movie that inspired the Joker. The top panel of page 10 is a direct homage to that film. Mm. Absolutely, and that's a quintessential Joker image, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, The Joker kills a henchman just because he questions him. Why not? Rather funnily, <laughs> he just shoves him in front of a passing truck. <laughs> I love the reaction of the other guys behind him.
0: Mm. I like how he just walks on smiling. Yeah, the Joker just shoves him in front of a truck and carries on. The Joker don't care, does he?
1: As with Joker's Five Way Revenge, page 12 gives us another definitive Joker Batman relationship moment. Joker confronts Thorn and lays it out. He doesn't care about the Batman's secret. And he even bid on the secret to stop others from learning it... ...and Thor, not knowing, saved his life. The Joker feels he and the Batman deserve each other. He's not above killing him... ...but it has to be a death worthy of the Joker. The scene where Batman and the cops try to protect G. Carl Francis... ...is almost an exact replay of the scene from Batman number one... ...only the Batman is a lot more thorough... ...and the Joker still succeeds, so it's kind of wasting his time. I would have liked to have seen him spray Francis earlier on, I think that would have been a nice foreshadowing touch. Because in the animated episode, we do see that, don't we?
0: Do it. Harley Quinn
1: puts the powder right, on yeah, yeah. Him, and that's how they gas him later on. Uh, but we don't get any such scene in this, because that's how we learn it's the two chemicals together, the spray and the gas, that kills him at midnight. So it would have been nice to see the Joker actually spray him, that would have been a nice bit of foreshadowing, but, you know, it doesn't, doesn't spoil the issue or anything. Whilst this story does work... As a two-part tale, it formed part of Engelhart's multi-part Detective Comics run, one of the seminal Batman works. In a few short issues, nine in total, Engelhart pretty much redefined Doctor Phosphorus, Hugo Strange, Rupert Thorne, The Penguin, Deadshot and The Joker. But Engelhart never knew when writing these issues who the artist was going to be. Rogers and Austin's art adds so much to these issues, and arguably, it's why... These stories are so well remembered and so often reprinted that it's such a surprise to learn that script and art were produced independently. Some of the continuing plot lines may be a little confusing to readers who are only going into this issue. What with the Silver St Cloud and Rupert Thorne subplots coming to a head, but the Joker story is so engaging that it doesn't matter. It's not entirely original. The Joker fish stuff is clever but the Joker announcing the deaths of his targets on TV beforehand and even the time of death, midnight, are all straight from the first Joker story we covered last week. And surprisingly neither Batman or Gordon make reference to this. But, as with Adam's last story Rogers and Austin's Joker is damn near definitive.
0: What do you think about that? I really liked it. I I thought the Joker bits were the best in it but I did like the, the haunting of Hugo Strange yeah. Should it should have be been a hammer horror film. Which the Haunting Hugo of Strange, Strange could totally be a hammer <laughs> film,
1: not it? Uh, something Michael pointed out before we started recording that I didn't notice because critical reading is apparently <laughs> not what we do. In the last panel of this issue the lightning forms the shape of Hugo Strange. Yeah. Which I thought was really quite cool. I have once Michael pointing it out to me. How many times have I read this comic in my life? Tons, judging by the condition of that pocketbook. Never noticed that.
0: Well every time you read it you learn something there.
1: Yeah. Although to be fair yeah. it is a lot smaller yeah. in the
0: pocket book. So um um that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. I do like how the, the Joker is confident enough that he'll poison the fish and then check the copyright laws. (laughs) Maybe he was just checking that it
1: worked (laughs) before he did anything. That seems fair enough. Uh, The story continued inside of the Joker in Detective Comics issue 476, cover dated April 78, with a cover by Rogers and Austin. On it, the Batman stands, cape draped over him so he's all shadowed, except for his face which is wrapped with the devilish visage of the Joker. The sign of the Joker is written inside the cape and the Batman stands as the rain lashes down over three dead bodies, all with the same ghoulish death grin. Pretty damn good cover. The same creative team worked on the issue, except the letters this time were by Milton Snapping. The next copyright commissioner dies on schedule, despite the Batman's disguise as the man. The Joker gloats about this on national TV, and the Batman, thoroughly pissed off, realises that the Joker must be broadcasting on his own transmitter. He leaves to pursue the lead, but catches a fleeting glimpse of a figure. A figure that looks like Hugo Strange. The Batman looks, but there is no one around. But a vapour analysis meter is at his feet. Elsewhere, somebody else with an interest in Hugo Strange drives through the night. Rupert Thorne and his hitchhiker Silver St Cloud travel in silence until the 4am radio broadcast informs them of the night's happenings in Gotham and the duo get in an argument about the merits or lack thereof of the Batman, culminating in Thorne kicking Silver out of the car and then being attacked by the ghost of Hugo Strange. Silver manages to charter a plane back to Gotham at 4am, arriving just in time to see the Batman tackle the Joker on the fire escape of the Joker's next intended victim. The Batman alerted to the Joker, thanks to the analysis meter, makes chase through the sheet rain and thunderstorms. The Joker strikes back with acid from his flower and Silver's heart leaps into her mouth as the Batman and the Joker clash on a suspended girder on a construction site high above the street. Fate intervenes as lightning flashes down, hitting the girder just as Batman leaps away. The shock stuns the Joker who falls into Gotham Harbour. As the Batman prowls for signs of life Silver locates him and having seen him in action says that it's over. She doesn't know Batman as an urban vigilante or mysterious hero. She knows him as a lover and a friend and she can't sit around wondering if this is the night he doesn't come back. She leaves saying he is not to try and find her. The Batman stands, who knows for how long, before Commissioner Gordon arrives to say Rupert Thorne, terrified, has turned himself in, confessing to all his misdeeds, including how he convinced the council to bring down the Batman. Gordon turns, but as a new day dawns, the Batman is gone. Chief O'Hara from the 1960s TV show makes an appearance, which was pretty cool, but this is kind of where the Joker's plan falls apart. The cat... Takes the joker fish into the house of the next victim... and then mad with joker venom attacks the vic... then there is the shock of the cat attacking Batman... and then the cape crusader far into the flood dead... with the joker's grin on his face... which is a great fake out... Yeah, don't get me wrong... but cats don't operate on a timetable... (laughs) it sure is lucky that the cat came in the house... at exactly 3am isn't it... Mm. and the joker can't be outside... sending the cat in... because he's on TV... Mere seconds later, and we learn later on in the issue that he's at his ha ha hacienda. Yeah. Unless one of the Joker's henchmen did it, but presumably
0: the entire house is surrounded by police. Well, maybe cats being the soulless things they are, <laughs> kind of soulless spawns of the devil. They work with the witching hour. what three a.m. is the witching hour now. Is that, that was midnight. It always has been three.
1: Is it? Yeah. I thought like the hour of the wolf is four a.m. It's two to three. Is it? It's the witching hour, yeah. Alright, fair enough. I'll take your word for that. The only real weak spot in the story for me is where Hugo Strange drops the convenient plot device, literally, <laughs> at Batman's feet. Throughout the run, Hugo Strange showing up to Rupert Thorne as a ghost could be interpreted as Thorne going mad. But here, the ghost leaves Batman a present that allows him to trap the Joker later. Mm. I, I, I didn't. Uh, I was a bit iffy about that. Because that means that the ghost of Hugo Strange is, is real, ghost. but if he's real if he's a real ghost how's he carrying things? But he manages to strangle Rupert Thorne later on. So.
0: Well, maybe he is cracking up, but maybe he's not carrying things, he's Showing up near those things.
1: Well, so the, the vapor
0: analysis meter was just lying in the forest, was it? You find some weird things in the forest. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, it used to be paw <laughs> all stuck together, not two rocks that look like boobs. No, no, not two rocks. That's just you. It's then. a pretty nice visual, though. You go straight, it's not the rocks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Page five. Moving swiftly up. Uh, with the Joker musing that Joker Fisher just the beginning is hilarious Joker burgers being the highlight but I do love Rogers breaking with comic book form the Joker turns the page for us yeah I really like that I thought that was really clever <laughs> I really did like it especially since if you have a look though he has actually drawn Boss Thorne's
0: car driving away yeah he stood in the next panel
1: yeah turning the page you know, which I thought was really good absolutely fantastic the four page dialogue scene between Thorn and Silver could have been a chore but Roger's excellent angles make it an exciting sequence rather than just shots of them sitting in a car talking it sure is lucky that A Silver was dropped off near an airfield and B there was someone there at 4am to hire her a plane yeah that was fortunate wasn't it Mm. luck is a recurring motif yes (laughs) dumb luck the confrontation between the Batman and the Joker is excellent, as is the Silver Bruce breakup seat. The Batman can handle anything except this, and it's topped off with an absolutely magnificent full page Rogers and Austin splash of the Batman swinging off as dawn rises. Lens flare!
0: It's not a particularly good lens flare, I don't think. No! I think it ruins the piece of art. It would have been much better without that. Without,
1: yeah, mmm. I can see what you're saying, because it does cover his face.
0: Yeah. But I still,
1: I still love it as a piece of artwork. I think it's good. But yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying, though. That may
0: have been better without that. Because with the crosses as well, is it like a crosser? Is Deadshot uh, come back? Dead, on the next dead Deadshot shoots him dead. <laughs> End of Batman.
1: <laughs> uh, I always refer to this story as just laughing fish as in the Batman pocketbook I originally read and re-re-read re re this the first page of Sign of the Joker was likewise cut off to make one seamless double length story and it works like that although that pocketbook which skips the Doctor Phosphorus stories and starts with the dead yet live was my first experience of reading a true comic book collection similar to what is published today Taken together, it is comics in their purest and most exciting form. An established character portrayed in an exciting new way. Old villains renewed but still recognisable. Writing and art working together to create a beautiful whole of a kind that cannot be replicated in any other form of entertainment. It's too long to be a film, too expensive to be a TV show. Each page is wonderfully structured with Rogers seemingly delighted at depicting Batman as he should be seen. Everything is at night in the rain with the thunder rolling in. The Batman himself is a fluid, athletic presence in a gothic labyrinth, the cape billowing behind him, and is simply the textbook depiction of both characters. But despite the fact that every page of these comics could be framed, this is no mere pin-up book masquerading as sequential storytelling. No, this is comics in the hands of master storytellers. To be brutally honest, aside from the hilarity of the Joker fish, the Joker story here isn't anything new to old-time readers. But again, this was the Joker being redefined. Insane but perfectly rational, funny but dark, out to have fun but with deadly intent. This is the Joker. This
0: is the Batman. What did you think? I really liked it. As a whole? Yeah, because it does fall apart a little bit near the end. Most of the Joker's plans do, though, when you, you scrutinise them, don't they? Yeah. A but, lot of them don't hold up. But when it's one big thing, I think it works better like that. As one complete one, yeah, story. Yeah. Well, you can essentially read all of Engelhart's run as one story. Mm.
1: I mean, the Walt Simonson art and the Doctor Phosphorus stuff's a bit jarring. Yeah. And then Marshall Rogers did two issues after Engelhart left, so Engelhart did two issues before Rogers came on. Right. And then Rogers did two issues after he left. So this strange apparitions trade is still the only place to get the complete Engelhart Rogers run. Right. And I think this is out of print now. Yeah. Because in the Marshall Rogers Legends of the Dark Knight hardcover that's just come out, obviously only the Marshall Rogers stuff's in there. Yeah. The Engelhart stuff's not in. And every other time this has been republished, there've only been excuse me, one story of it, like Deadshot Ricochet is in the greatest Batman stories ever told. Yeah. And Laughing Fish Sign of the Joker is in the greatest Joker stories ever told. And the Malay Penguin is in the greatest Batman stories ever told, volume two. And yeah. so it's scattered all over the place. DC needs to bring this back into print, to be yep. honest with you. Well, I notice it's Titan and not DC. Well, this is the British version because it's got a right. British price on the back. Yeah. This is when Titan Comics had the licence to publish DC trades. Mm. and they Did the, a better job. Yeah, because they were better value for us. They were exactly the same, yeah. except they had a, a British price on the back and said Titan Books instead of DC,
0: but they were cheaper. Mm. They were cheaper than buying the American version. So. You know what I think about the Silver St. Cloud, though? Yeah. the I, I don't really... Like admitting this, but I prefer the Kevin Smith widening Gaia ending to that relationship. It's not ended yet. I know there's more to that than widening really Gaia. The, uh, widening Gaia, right? Okay. No, I
1: think. I think oh no, it's cacoph- you know, Cacophony No, and then was, the widening yeah. Gaia, isn't it? Yeah, the, the widening guy is
0: a cliffhanger ending. There's, there's more to it. No, one. I think that's very yeah, definite. Yeah, I'm not it's, sure it's about. It's written that. in blood. that's splurting from her slit neck. Yeah, I uh, think there's a definite uh, end to that relationship. See, I don't like because to me, Kevin Smith did exactly the same thing on Daredevil. He
1: came in and killed a girlfriend. Right. and again is this not the Alan Moore thing you're coming in
0: and pissing on it to make it better um, it's easy to come in and knock the house down but see the thing is though I really like the build up to it he built the relationship between oh the yeah two I'm four. not saying
1: it's not good but is it not what? it's just the same shtick he did in Daredevil well,
0: I'm going to come in and kill a long term girlfriend I think it, it works differently that way because it's his own story not part of a, another one. well role. Daredevil wasn't Daredevil was just an 8 issue story that Kevin Smith did he was, came in and killed Karen Page Oh, was that not part of the Daredevil run, though? Oh yeah, it's not a mini. Whereas this is its own, very definite standalone series. I know. I'm
1: still. I'm, it doesn't sit well with me to just have superstar writer come in and kill somebody else's character. He... I mean, I know there is more emotion invested in the reader that it's Silverson Cloud, yeah, rather than a girlfriend that Smith made up. But just coming in and killing the girlfriend, isn't that a bit cliche? I forgive it for being its own story
0: and the build-up. And also, like I said, we haven't seen the end of it yet. Yeah. So If we'd have just shown up and killed her off, then yeah, okay. But because he did the build-up first... Is she in Cacophony? No. She's only in the Widening Gaia? Yeah, they meet at the beginning of the Widening Gaia. Right. Okay. Fair enough.
1: Finally, tonight, The Laughing Fish, and looking at the runtime, people are probably thinking that guy. The Laughing Fish was the 46th episode of Batman the Animated Series, originally airing on January 10th, 1993, and was an adaptation of both these comic stories. Written by Paul Dini and directed by Bruce W. Tim, this was a very faithful translation of these comics into the animated medium. The first half of the episode is Laughing Fish, removing all of the comic subplots, such as Silver St Cloud and Rupert Thorne, and concentrating purely on the Joker-Fish angle, right down to some of the dialogue being identical. After the attack on the second copyright commissioner, the story switches to Joker's five-way revenge, with the confrontation in the aquarium and Harvey Bullock standing in for Hooley in the shark tank. The story then switches back to Sign of the Joker, with the nighttime confrontation in the rain and thunder, and the Joker falling to his supposed death in the sea. Dee rewrites the story to fit into the animated continuity, including Harley Quinn and Harvey Bullock, two characters not even created at the time of the original comics. The fact that broadcasting standards wouldn't let anyone be killed means that the Joker's threats are a little neutered, with even the shark surviving, and the animation is pretty good, although not the series' best. Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill and Arlene Sorkin put in their usual fine performances and it's a pretty good take on the material. He yeah, gets a big thumbs up from me just for crediting Englehart and O'Neill. I was quite impressed with that. Mm-hmm. That they credited both of them. We noticed you rewound them. I, I did. It. Well, it was one of those things I just glanced at. Did that just say Steve Englehart? Yeah. And I rewound it and saw that they'd credited both of them. So that was, that was quite nice. Did you like the animated episode?
0: I did, yeah. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, I like the, the, the mixture of them. What, that it took two stories and blended them into one? Yeah, I think it works really well as one story as well. Yeah. Well, they removed all the subplot stuff, did it, it works on its own anyway. Yeah. Yeah. all the Silver Cloud stuff
1: was, was out the window. Excellent, good. Well, I enjoyed that. Yeah. That was quite good. That ended up being as long as I thought it would. We're only at one hour 40. Next time on an all-new episode of Hate Kids Comics. Three favourites in Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker. So we've covered three origin tales... Three down and out classics. (laughs) Next time it's three of my favourites, which are Batman issue 353, 321 and 366. The fourth and final part of Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker, will be an issue of Batman Adventures. Because we have to cover something from that, because the animated
0: series is so important to the Joker, and then two of Michael's favourites. One of them is, one of them I remember being what I liked, so I hope it's still good. You hope it's still good (laughs) in that as well. See you next week, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Bye bye. Goodbye. (laughs)
1: is that the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyrighted by their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. I would go out
0: tonight, but I haven't got a stick.